I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 22, Psalm 22. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so these brothers have some. And as they make their way to the back, if you need a Bible, just get their attention. And they will give you one of those as our gift to you. Just keep that, bring it back with you each Lord's Day. Last week in our series in the book of Psalms, we took time to address an issue that arises when one encounters a passage in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, which is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament like ours is today. Psalm 22 is applied several times in the New Testament to Jesus' death on the cross, as we heard in our Scripture reading from Matthew 27 earlier. But when you look at Psalm 22, it's about events in the life of King David a thousand years before Jesus, at least it is mostly so. At the outset of last week's message, I said it would be somewhat unusual, that message would, because it was devoted to addressing some issues about the New Testament's use of the old. And I urged you to, when looking at how the new uses the old, never to go back to the old and say there's something there beyond the author's meaning. And I urged against that because it's not the way God made language to work. I said last week, God gave us the rules of interpretation before he gave us the book to which we apply the rules. Otherwise, you'd never be able to understand it. Otherwise, Adam would not have been able to understand God when he spoke if the rules of interpretation were not built into Adam as God's image bearer as the rules are built into us. Otherwise, your child would not be able to understand you when you speak to them and to learn language as they do. But unless there's a disability that prevents it, they somehow automatically do so. And that's because, as image bearers, the ability to communicate according to the rules of God that He created is inherent in us. And so it's impossible for the Bible to be unique in its interpretation so in fact, it is certainly unique in other important ways, inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and its unity. Psalm 22 raises those questions as it's one of what are sometimes called messianic psalms, psalms that in some way point to and were sometimes applied to the coming Messiah, Jesus. In Psalm 22, we have a psalm that is about King David and about Jesus in the future, and so it's similar to one of the psalms that introduces the entire book of Psalms, Psalm number 2. And I remind you of what I said about Psalm 2 when we looked at it several weeks back. That psalm begins with the question. Psalm 2 and verse 1 says, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? Now that was happening in the life of King David a thousand years before Jesus came, and yet the New Testament applies it to Jesus in Acts chapter 4. You, sovereign Lord, spoke, sovereign Lord, spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's quoting then Psalm number 2. But then it goes on. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. And so how can it be both? How can this psalm be about David and Jesus at the same time? 
Well, it's because David understood when he wrote that what was happening to him was part of a much larger drama that was about more than him. He knew that there would be one coming after him in his line, one of David's descendants who would be the ultimate ruler. And so that what took place in David's life was pointing to what would take place in Jesus' life. Referring to the covenant that God made with David, Psalm 132 says this, The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. The forever reign of the son of David required obedience. So how did David's sons do with that? In fact, how, for that matter, did David do with that obedience? We all know that they all failed, every last one of them. Solomon's heir, Rehoboam, walked in ungodly counsel, and the nation split in two, and the Bible says this about that time. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And that rebellion continued until Jesus came, and continues to this day as well. Because the Bible says Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So by and large, Israel remains in that blindness and that rebellion against their Messiah. Meanwhile, God sent the son of David, Jesus, who did obey perfectly, obeyed perfectly even to the point of death, spoken of, the death spoken of in this psalm, and recorded in our scripture reading today from the New Testament. And so the Bible says of Jesus that he succeeded. He obeyed where all his predecessors had not. It says famously in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The entirety of his life was obedience, all the way up until his death, which itself was the supreme act of obedience to God the Father. And therefore, because of that, God exalted him to the highest place. So Psalm 22 is speaking of people on multiple levels, of David, who wrote it, but of David's successors, who are potential heirs of the promise that God made to him pointing ultimately to Jesus, the one completely obedient son of David, who then has the right to be king forever, but also it's communicating on another level to us, to you and me. And I say that because this psalm was designed to and was sung in the assembly for all the people. And that's because the life of David and his successors points to the one to come, and they will experience many of the same things, as will the people of God in general, because of this. The rebellion, whether it's against David, whether it's against other of David's descendants, whether it's of God's people in general, whether it's of you or me, because of our stand for the Lord, the rebellion is not ultimately against David or any human ruler or any human at all for that matter. 
But the rebellion is ultimately against God himself. And Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so, in our message today, I want us to see how the opposition and difficulties described here apply to our lives. In a fallen world, surrounded by fallen people, And fallen ourselves, we experience various forms of trial and opposition, and this psalm provides direction for how to respond to it. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you that we are here, gathered as your people. We thank you for the privilege of being able to sing praise to you from hearts that have been changed by you. Thank you for allowing us worship in all of its aspects, reading your scripture, giving back to you a portion of what you've entrusted to us, but now to have your book open before us. We ask you, Lord, to instruct us and help us then to participate, to be attentive and be open to the changes that you require and deserve. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as a result of last week's excursus, Though it was one that I thought it was important to take, as I expected, we never got to the outline that you were given last week. And so you have the same outline this week, and let's get to it. I say, first of all there, that we are to handle miseries through memories. The 31 verses of this psalm are divided into two major parts. Verses 1 through 21 are a lament about what kinds of things befall God's people. And verses 22 to 31 give praise and thanks to the Lord for His deliverance from our trials. So you have these two major sections, verses 1 through 21, a lament about the kinds of things that befall us in a fallen world, and then verses 22 to 31 issues forth in praise to the Lord for delivering us from those trials. And in that first section, verses 1 through 21, David goes back and forth from his troubles to their solution and doing what finally drives him to the praise of that second section. So going back and forth, as David does in the first section, as we will see, is what moves him toward that praise that is the second section. Within this overall lament in verses 1 to 21, a lament to God about how bad things are. There are, sorry for all the sections and stuff, but there are six subsections. So verses 1 through 21 is the first section of the psalm, and that first section has six subsections to it. There's verses 1 and 2, 3 through 5, 6 through 8, So verses 1 and 2, 3 through 5, 6 through 8, 9 through 11, 12 through 18, and 19 through 21. So that's for the three of you that take notes while we're doing this. And of those those six subsections, the first, the third, and the fifth, so 
verses 1 and 2, verses 6 through 8, and verses 12 through 18, those describe suffering. And then each of those is followed immediately by prayers to God. And as it progresses in those 21 verses, the intensity of the suffering diminishes. It goes from spiritual and psychological to physical. And then finally, the psalmist is moved to praise. Now, friends, there is a lesson for us in this that I hope we will see as we go through the psalm together. The lesson is not quite fake it till you make it, but it's more like practice until you can praise. That is, when, not if, you're discouraged. Practice what you see here. By its very nature, when you're in a state of mind, like we have described here, you don't feel like doing these spiritual exercises. Instead, like, like David, like God's people after him, like Jesus, in his, in his humanity, you want to give up. But this is your way out of the fog. This is your way out of the spiritual depression. If you don't feel like it, do it anyway. John Piper is famous for writing about our calling to delight in God. His entire ministry has really been centered on that idea, but he's been, often been asked, what do I do when I don't feel like delighting in God? And his answer is, continue to do your duty in the hope and prayer that God will use it to restore your delight. And that's something like what we have in this psalm. It describes clear and deep anguish, but it instructs us on what to do to gradually overcome it. And that includes handling miseries through memories, remembering, I say in the outline, others' deliverance. The misery is described at the outset of the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. And as this psalm makes clear, this misery is caused by people as opposed to circumstances. That is, you are sometimes victimized by adverse people rather than adverse situations. And it's due to their hatred of you because of your resemblance to God. Now let's be very clear here. Sometimes people don't like us because we're not likable. So that none of this is an excuse for me or you or any of us to be jerks for Jesus. Okay? And some people do that, unfortunately. But when someone is genuinely loving other people because they love God and seeking to live that out in their lives, fallen people being what they are, you're going to see this kind of thing that we have in Psalm number 22. And in fact, if you never have people who don't like you due to your stand for Christ, then it may be that you're not, in fact, standing for Christ. The Bible sets the expectation that people will see a difference in us and will at least at times, ask questions about your faith. What is it that makes you tick? That's why 1 Peter chapter 3 says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason 
for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. But being nice does not mean everyone will like you. But when they don't, it should be due to their problem, not us creating the problem. And emotionally here, the psalmist does not sense God's presence. Intellectually, he knows God is ever-present, but it doesn't feel that way. His way of escape from the spiritual malaise is to allow truth to trump feelings. Friends, feelings are a gift from God, but you were never intended to live by those feelings. Rather, you live by truth, and your feelings are to be governed and shaped by it, by the truth. And this is precisely where David goes in verse 3. And he remembers the truth of God's past actions. Verse 3. I've got all that from verses 1 and 2, yet, verse 3, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So notice, David is thinking back, he's thinking back to how God worked in the lives of other people in the past. And David knows that he would not be King David if it were not for God's work over centuries to bring him to where he is. He is, after all, the descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as the first part of your Bible reminds God's people over and over again, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. God is constantly reminding them of His work for them in the lives of their ancestors. And David knows that he is this descendant. He is King David because he has come through the appointed line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and in particular, one of Jacob's sons, Judah. And the Bible's pronouncement in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, that the scepter, the rule, rulership, will not depart from Judah. That the one to come, the ruler to come, is going to come through the tribe and the lineage of Judah. And in fact, David did that very thing. He came through Judah and then ultimately through Ruth? He comes through Ruth? You all remember who Ruth is? The eighth book of your Bible, four short chapters, about a woman named Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess, the Bible says. <laughs> Ruth from Moab. Nothing good is supposed to come out of Moab. But God can make good of anyone. And he uses Ruth. And he so arranges her circumstances that she meets a guy named Boaz, and Boaz is from Bethlehem, and Bethlehem becomes the city of David. And David knows then that he's only the king because God has done this with his people in the past. And so he has the presence of mind, thankfully, to remember that. Handle miseries through memories by remembering others' deliverance, and by remembering your own deliverance. 
So the mood here in the psalm swings yet again as David thinks about himself. Verse 6. Y'all looking at verse 6? If you're not, if you're not looking at verse 6, just pretend. Like when I look out here, just look down like you're... It'll just make me feel better. Okay, verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Psychologically, he's battling with maybe they're right. What a loser I am. I'm a worm. No one likes me, why should they? I'm the lowest. The Apostle Paul did some of that kind of self-loathing in Romans chapter 7. He said, good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. That sound familiar to anybody in your own life? And then he says just a few verses later, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? But both David and Paul did the same thing. They did their best to move from morbid introspection and navel-gazing to looking up and out of their current circumstance to not only what God had done in the lives of others, but what He had done in their lives. And so in verse 9, yet, despite all of that worm stuff, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. So, okay, you're not King David. I'm not King David. So these particular circumstances are not yours, but the Bible gives them because they're very much like ours. You're not King David, but you are a child of the king. And you are so because he worked in your circumstances, your circumstances, uniquely to bring you to himself. And if you think about that work, it has more connections to the past historically than you can even know. Those connections and what God set out to do to at a point in time bring you to the Lord Jesus Christ, those connections ultimately go back to eternity when God determined to do this gracious work in your life, a work in which you should rejoice. You can't know all the connections. But at least take the time to think about the ones you know. In the midst of your despair and when things, and you are down, you're psychologically thinking like Paul was and like, and like David, and like David was. Think about how it is you came to Christ. Think about who God used in order to bring you to Christ. Think about the things that God has done in your life and is doing in your life. And that's what David and Paul both did. Yes, they spent some time thinking about in the midst of all of the emotional distress and the things that were happening in their, their lives and the things that they were doing. But here's what Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 7. 
Who shall deliver me from this body subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Next verse in your Bible is chapter 8 and verse 1. Therefore, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, handle miseries through remembering, through memories. What God has done in the lives of others, what God has done in your own life as well. And I say in your outline, endure persecution through prayer. In the midst of your mental and emotional turmoil, attune your mind to truth, remembering what God has done for others and for you, and that will allow you to focus your prayer to Him. This prayer is honest prayer, and it's depressing prayer, originating from deep distress. But now it's centered on physical more than emotional and psychological. And these verses, beginning in verse 11 through verse 18, may be a prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus and the physical suffering He endured for us. Now I say that because it appears that verse 16 refers to piercing as in crucifixion. And David endured no such thing, and in fact, crucifixion would not become a form of execution for 500 years after this was written. Now, I take it as such, due to the uncanny ways, and it parallels the death of our Lord in several ways that I'll, I'll highlight. But in any case, we are instructed in our distress to do what is recorded here. Namely, we pray to God by calling out to Him for help. So endure persecution through prayer. Call out in, I say in the outline, helplessness. Verse 11, do not be far from me, for trouble is near me and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. The enemies of God's people have the capacity for great evil toward us. Now the fact that what people are capable of is rarely what they actually do can lull us into thinking that perhaps humanity has gotten better since things like this were written 3,000 years ago, or at least since the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago. But friends, the Bible teaches that human nature has not changed, and it's only circumstances and restraint that keep these kinds of things from happening. And when those common grace restraints are removed, then it will happen again. Whether in our lifetimes we do not know, but do not be fooled about sinful human nature. The enemies of God's people are compared to cruel and insensitive beasts, to bulls and lions who would destroy them. These bulls of Bashan were well-fed cattle east of the Sea of Galilee, and several other times in the Psalms, David spoke of his enemies as, as lions in Psalms 7 and 10 and 17 and 35 and 57 and 58. But these next five verses, beginning in verse 14, seem to go beyond the life of David and look forward to the death of Jesus. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax, it is melted within me. 
My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. The victim's strength is sapped like poured out water, and his joints were racked. Like melted wax, his his courage, his heart was gone. He had lost his desire to resist. His strength was gone and his mouth was dry. In his weakness, he's on the, the brink of death. Verse 16 says, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. These abusers are compared to dogs who in the ancient world were scavengers not cuddly pets like we have today. And like dogs, the the foes surrounded him. And to compare the enemies to dogs was to say that he was almost dead. These scavengers are waiting to feed on him. And the words they have pierced my hands and my feet appear to describe crucifixion. Verse 17, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. The Lord was weak and emaciated. His enemies stared at him, watching his death, and so they divided up his garments, his his last possession. One scholar said of these verses, these verses are a graphic picture of death by crucifixion. The bones of the hands, the arms, the soldiers, the shoulders and pelvis out of joint. The profuse perspiration caused by intense suffering. The action of the heart is affected. Strength exhausted and extreme thirst. The hands and feet are pierced. Partial nudity with the hurt to modesty are all associated with that mode of death. The accompanying circumstances are precisely those fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. When Pastor Larry read from Matthew chapter 27, your heart was quiet as mine was. So we thought about what the Lord endured and then to think about for why He endured it. He did this for us. He died the death that we deserve. What does that say? That God came to earth as man and died this cruel death that I deserve. What does that say about the anger and the depression that we feel when things are not to our liking? Underneath those friends, underneath that anger, underneath that expectation is the sense that I deserve better than I'm getting. (laughs) And when you think you deserve better than you have, hear this, you've forgotten the cross of Jesus. Because that's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. And the one person in God's world who did not deserve it took it for you and for me. Jesus spoke to the Father on the cross, My God, my God, 
And he said at the end, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And David did the same in his own much, much infinitely less difficulties. And we should as well with our still lesser difficulties. Endure persecution through prayer, calling out in helplessness, but also in, I say in the outline, hopefulness. You see how David continues to go back and forth. And then he remembers, but you, verse 19, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. And so he's remembering who the Lord is yet again. And though and so calling out not just in helplessness, but now in hopefulness, you are my strength, you can deliver me. The crying out and the remembering, the cycles, has resulted in confidence that's expressed in the remainder of the psalm. This is an acknowledgement that God can deliver. And verse 21 is an affirmation that He will deliver. Verse 21 says, Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, I say that this is confidence that He will deliver because there's something important here that's obscured in our English translation. In Hebrew, the verb that's translated save me literally means you have heard. And it's actually held to the end of the verse. So verse 21 should actually read, Rescue me from the mouth of the lions, from the horns of the wild oxen, you have heard me. This is a cry now of triumph, not despair. The one who prays this prayer is confident that he has been heard. His emotions and his mental state have changed so that God's no longer felt or thought to be far off, but very near, in control, and acting on behalf of his child. Friends, that's how you emerge from the mess you is in. You remember you remember God's goodness to others. You remember His goodness to you. You do what we see in this psalm, and that will allow you to do the last thing in the outline, to celebrate mercy through praise. Verse 22 starts that second major section. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. Now, did anybody think we were going to arrive at verse 22 when we started back in verse 1? <laughs> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And how dark it is. But then through that process, we're brought to verse 22. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. I gave the parallels from this psalm to Jesus' crucifixion in the New Testament last week, and I included the fact that Hebrews... The Hebrews chapter 2 applies this, that verse, to Jesus. The idea is after the agony of death, there's the experience of victory because, of course, He did not remain in the grave and so can once again praise the Lord. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor Him. Revere Him, all the descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. 
rehearsing God's deeds for others and for ourselves in the past and praying to Him in the midst of our trials with confidence that He can act in our best interest leads to this kind of praise. And all of God's people are to praise Him with our lips and our lives. Verse 25, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly with all of God's people. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. On the basis of this praise, David said he would fulfill his vows, and he encouraged the congregation to praise the Lord with him. Verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. He's encouraging them there in verse 26 to keep on praying. When it says, may your hearts live forever, it means do not give up. And then verse, the final five verses. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before you. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before Him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve Him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim His righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, He has done it. These verses point to universal praise. And one other very important thing. When that psalm ends with those words, He has done it, in Hebrew that can be translated with a phrase that many of you have heard. It is finished. God has done it. God has finished it through Jesus. Friends, the victory is already won. It's just a matter of experiencing it now. God has already declared it. God has already done everything that's necessary in order for what we read here, for the universal praise of the God who alone desires and deserves to be worshipped by His creation to be accomplished. So, in the midst of your junk, you've got to think like this. You've got your junk. You create junk. You experience junk from other people. That's life in a fallen world. The Psalms are filled with it. But they always point us to the solution. The solution is ultimately what God has done, not what we do. God's strength is seen in our weakness. And friends, you need to read then the Psalms like that, applying them to your life and your circumstances so that God gets the praise. Here's your take-home truth. The cross comes before and it comes for the ultimate crown. He rules His universe now. He will rule His earth from the earth in the future. We will rule with Him. But what comes before that, and of necessity must come before that, is the cross by which we are reconciled to God. We're going to pray in just a moment. 
But I wonder if there's anybody in this room who came here not understanding, never having had applied to you personally the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. You cannot have a relationship with God apart from Him. If it were possible to have a relationship with God apart from Him, then it would not have been necessary for God Himself to come to earth to endure crucifixion. Friends, it's the only way. Thankfully, God has made that way, and He has finished it. He offers it to you. At age 19, I received that, and my life has not been the same since, and I have eternity to look forward to and reigning with Him in the future, not because of me, but because of Him. And we offer that to you. God offers that to you. And so, realize, you're a sinner, like me. You're one of those people who can do that kind of thing to the Lord Jesus Christ, can do that kind of thing, behave that way toward God's people. Realize that that's you. You have the capacity to do that. You're a sinner. But recognize that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin in full, past, present, and future. Repent. Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go your way. No longer go my way. I'm going to learn of you what your word says, and by your grace, I'm going to carry that out, fulfill my vow, as David said. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray. When we do, from your heart to God, acknowledge your sin. Tell God that you believe that Jesus is the only way for you to have complete forgiveness of sin and that you give your life to Him and that you're going to follow Him. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank You again for this sacred time and the opportunity to open Your book and to see You and Your character extolled there, in particular in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, in Your Word, You show us what we are. You show us where we are and the circumstances in which we live in a fallen world. But Lord, You never leave it at that. You never leave us in the darkness. You point us toward the light and the solution. We thank You that we have it in Jesus Christ. Thank You for the work that You've done in my life personally that I do not deserve. Thank You for delivering, rescuing, saving these brothers and sisters in this room. And Lord, I would ask you to graciously touch the heart of anyone who came into this room without knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and bowing before Him as Lord. We ask you to draw them to yourself, and we will give you the praise for this because it is you who has done it. It is you who has finished it. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.